Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. Peter, I'm glad you could join us uh, for this podcast today. You have had an interesting and varied career, a charter boat skipper in the Caribbean, a writer, filmmaker, produced documentaries, explorer, and painter. We'd like to hear about one of those adventures, in particular in the Amazon, relating to Theodore Roosevelt's expedition down a river that would actually later bear his name, the Rio Roosevelt. Before we get there, through all of your adventures, you got to have a good drinking story for us. Well, I've got two. Let's hear them. Now that I think of it, neither actually involve taking a cup of something and putting it to my lips, but both of them involve drink. The first one is from perhaps my first big adventure, which was a long time ago. Back in 1966, I did the Jack Kerouac on the road adventure exploring the U.S. by hitchhiking. We wandered all over the U.S., mainly down into the deep south, and then back up north and a bit to the west as well. We were two of us. We were both 19. We were big guys. I'm six foot four. He was two, I think, which is a bit relevant, in that we were hitchhiking two six foot four guys with backpacks. Today wouldn't stand a chance of being picked up. Back in the 60s, it was a lot more likely, but still difficult. We were outside of Gadsden, Alabama. We'd been dropped off there early in the evening. Terrible spot. 18-wheelers ripping past us on Highway 61 going north. We were heading north away from New Orleans where we'd been. We were there all night long. Nobody picked us up. Finally, I wanted to sleep, but I looked on the ground. The ground was covered with these black caterpillars, so I'm not going to lie down on the ground. So we kept hitchhiking. Finally, as dawn broke, we were picked up, finally, to our amazement, by a car. We clamber in the car with our backpacks. There's four guys in the car already. They were moonshiners. They were moving liquor from Georgia through Alabama to Tennessee, which was still dry in those days. So we were picked up by these four guys, three of them Southerners, a father who was running the show, his son who was along for the ride, and his father. So three generations of moonshiners, real, real Southerners, plus a tough-as-nail French-Canadian guy that was some kind of partner with them in this. And the trunk was filled with the illicit moonshine. They had a little with them to pass around. I mean, they had tons of it in the trunk, but it was for sale. So at six o'clock in the morning, drank a little moonshine. We finally got to Chattanooga, where they let us off before they went to sell the booze. My second one will help explain to your audience why I sound like this. And I have made, I've been to, explored about 24 volcanoes. And on one of the last ones, which was a very exotic, little explored big volcano called Marum on the island of, um, it even escaped me for now. Anyway, it's an island 
in uh, Vanuatu, the island chain of Vanuatu. Ambram is the name of the island. So we climbed this volcano. We were on top camping for four days. It's one of the biggest lava lakes in the world. It creates its own environment with clouds, and it also just gets a lot of weather on this island. So we were frequently hit by big rainstorms, thunderstorms, howling winds. We were there for only four days, and yet the acid from the sulfuric acid that was created by the smoke that was coming off the volcano destroyed three of our tents within four days. Brand new tents, eaten away. And unfortunately, the sulfuric acid mixed with the rainwater and with my own saliva creates sulfuric acid in my throat and uh, gave me serious, serious problems. Ended up in treatment for a year. So that destroyed one of my vocal cords, which unfortunately means that I can no longer, well, for two years, I couldn't eat or drink. And still today, I cannot drink at all anything, let alone whiskey, but not even water. So today I'm afraid I'm not a drinker. I try to talk. I hope your audience can hear me. So there you go. You know, it's it's funny you talked about the moonshiners in Tennessee. In our family photo album, it's a picture of my great-grandfather, and he was in eastern Tennessee. And there's a picture of him, and he's in the middle of the, the forest. He's clearly dressed in his Sunday best. He's got a suit on and everything, and he's standing next to a still. So apparently we dragged the photographer out there because he was so proud of his still. He was all dressed up, and you could see him there just in that period outfit, standing next to a still posing. So it's a, it's a small world. Switching gears on you, what led you on this path to be a filmmaker and documentarian, explorer, writer, painter? What sets you out on this? Well, my usual answer to that question, which is usually addressed to the issue of becoming a filmmaker, is that back in the 60s, I couldn't play the guitar and I couldn't paint. So I had to become a filmmaker. Now that's a big flipping, of course. I guess exploration is best defined as curiosity matched with action. And uh, I was always interested, curious about the more exotic parts of, of life in the world. And uh, interested in not having to take what was then referred to as a real job. And so I got into filmmaking. I was at a university that uh, where a bunch of us managed to coerce the student council by Hooker Crook, mostly Crook, to uh, get us filmmaking equipment, cameras, etc. And uh, we started making what were then called underground films. And then... I uh, moved from that into television. And then at the same time, I had a lot of interest in the ocean and sailing in the sea. So I kind of combined those two and began making adventure films, mainly about the ocean, about sailing, historical films of dramas about sailing events, etc. And then uh, underwater films. And that became kind of my specialty for a while. And then continued as well, making more general sort of, you know, it's hard to make a living with a niche as small as that. So I continued that, but also continued to make general films for television networks and the like. And uh, and I did do some pretty exotic adventures or expeditions. One to a galloping glacier way back in the early 70s. 
It's moving at one point 250 feet a day, which is an incredible speed for a glacier. Perhaps the fastest moving glacier of its time. And through that, I had to get involved a bit in climbing to photograph it around the turn of the millennium. And I got much more into back into documentaries. And especially 2006, a documentary series that I got going called Angry Planet. And eventually we made 39 episodes of that series in the years 2006 to 2010. And there was everything from volcanoes, hurricanes, tornadoes, caves, deep caves. We sailed around Cape Horn. We went to all seven continents. We crossed Baffin Island by dog sled. We explored glaciers in Patagonia and the Canadian Arctic. We did a lot with uh, fire, uh, forest fires. And then the series ended then. But in 2014, we were approached by Pivot TV, which was a uh, an American network that was running our previous shows and was interested in reviving the series. So we did 10 more for them, which were a bit more oriented, quite a bit more oriented to the subject matter of climate change and weather change and global warming. And um, we did some kind of extraordinary shows with them, one of which was the Rio Roosevelt show, and another was the Volcano Show, which I've just mentioned. And the third was an exploration of serious, serious bushfires in Australia. So very much oriented towards the issues of, of the eating planet. Now, as a filmmaker going out into the wilds and into the bush, what are the biggest challenges for you? Well, things have changed a bit. They've changed a lot. But one of my first big expeditions to the wild was back in 83, when I did a film all through Micronesia. Truck Lagoon, Bonape, Palau, Saipan, Guam. Back then, we were shooting on film, 16 millimeter. So today, it is so much easier. But back then, we were carrying, I was carrying, Groove 2, just me and a, a woman who was doing the sound. And the two of us did it together. And I had a camera that was a big camera, all this film. And fortunately, did back then, didn't have to go through the x-rays because all the film would have been wiped by the x-ray machines. But, and you didn't have a clue what anything looked like till you got it all back home into the lab and, and seen. So it was much more difficult then. When I was doing Angry Planet, we were in the early days of high definition, big cameras. So just the issue of getting big cameras on big tripods, up mountains, through jungle, on small boats, keeping things steady, keeping things protected from, as I've mentioned, hydrogen sulfide gas, which is terrible on cameras, lenses, and uh, snow, rain, salt water, humidity in jungles, all those things. Towards the end of that series, out came the GoPro camera. And so with the new portability, stability, etc., things are much easier today. But, of course, today there's new problems. Those are some of the issues. Now, in all of your travels, what is the strangest thing you ever saw? Something that you witnessed it and almost couldn't believe what you, you saw, couldn't explain it. Well, I once made a film in Haiti where I filmed voodoo. And, you know, filming voodoo in the middle of Haiti with people eating glass and appearing to swallow glass. Ended up showing that film on a series called The World of the Unexplained, which was appropriate for, you know, 
Voodoo is quite strange, no doubt about it. But a couple of other stories went to Venezuela to film, and we wanted to find an anaconda, and we did. We went out into the deep bush jungle, and uh, there's a lot of wildlife in Venezuela. And uh, we found a 17-foot anaconda, which we grabbed. When I say we, I should admit that I said to my host, you grab it, I'll film you grabbing it. So he grabbed the pointy, and it took four of them, and later me, because I helped after filming, to pick up this giant snake and bring it out so that it could be filmed a little more clearly in a clearer location. And eventually it swam away, swam right past me. They're a pretty amazing animal. I filmed a lot of amazing animals in Africa and in South America. My partner's name is George, George Karunas, who was the, the host of my film, my series. That's a second answer. And a third answer to your question is, I've been to Timbuktu. Timbuktu is truly an exotic, exotic destination. And, uh, and when we got there, insanely hot, right in the Sahara Desert, massively hot. And I probably had heat stroke. I was acting crazy. And exotic people there, we'll leave it at that. Um, and in the morning, our guide said to me and to George, and he said he had heard that bandits were, were aware that we were there, and they were likely to follow us out into the desert and uh, rob us, steal everything, steal our Land Rover. So he wanted to make this surreptitious departure where we let it be known that we were heading north, away from Timbuktu. And then we, we left very, very early in the morning and then circled back through town and headed south. So we got away from it. And, uh, but it's a wild place. And you literally, to this day, can see salt trains of camels carrying salt from the salt mines on crossing the desert. You know, it's a, it's a wild place. That's three answers. Let's go to your trip down the Rio Roosevelt. Why go and retrace Theodore Roosevelt's journey down that river? Well... I had been interested in doing this for a long time. Theodore Roosevelt's got to be the most interesting American president. Theodore Roosevelt's an amazing character. You know, he said that he intended to live under canvas on horseback for a month of every year of his life. And he did, including the years that he was president. He would get away. So after his third run at the presidency, which was unsuccessful, so he wanted to do something to get away from politics. He decided he was going to explore a river that was then called the River of Doubt, tributary of the Amazon, northbound river in Brazil. It never been navigated. Wicked river. Rapids. Hostile natives. Hostile animals. And hostile insects. Big time. Well, he went off to South America and he organized a trip. He did it. He was now in his late 50s, no spring chicken. And uh, they took these heavy boats down the river. He went with uh, the preeminent Brazilian explorer, whose name was Condito Rondon. So the, off they went, with a bunch of other people. They had these heavy boats. They went down. Well, they capsized a number of times. They lost boats. They lost four, three or four of the boatman swept away in the rapids. He got malaria, got very sick, but they made it. Well, he wrote a book about it, 
Theater was later named after him. It's now called the Rio Roosevelt. Well, I had the, I learned that one of his boats had been rediscovered. It was under a sandbar, and some people had rediscovered it. But it had then been very water level, very uh, up and down. No more rainy season, wet season goes up by two or three feet. Boat was recovered by sand and water, and sandbar covered it. But these people knew approximately where they thought it was. I wanted to go back and rediscover this amazing historical boat. So, 2014, we got an opportunity to do it. I did it as a flag expedition for the Explorers Club. I'm a member of the Explorers Club, which is a club based in New York City, originally founded by Robert Perry and some five other Arctic explorers back in 1905. We now have about approaching 4,000 members around the world. I'm a member of the Canadian chapter. I was president of the Ontario chapter of the Explorers Club for a while. Um, so one of the things in the Explorers Club is that you can apply to carry the flag of the Explorers Club on an expedition. If approved, they give you a, a flag you carry. It's an honor. Neil Armstrong carried a flag to the moon. Thor Heyerdahl carried a flag on his expedition. James Cameron carried a flag on this expedition to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. So I did it as a filming expedition for an angry planet. So we flew in. Very difficult to get to. Very, very difficult. Small plane to a spot close to where this boat was thought to be buried. And we, uh, we filmed there for several weeks. We uh, used things like underwater metal detectors because we thought the boat had metal in it, nails and stuff. Let me let me stop you there. You you fly in to the Amazon, small plane, small airfield. Yep. As you land and you step out of that plane, what'd you see? What'd you feel? Well, it is dense, dense jungle. It's you know there's a new theory that, that the jungle of the Amazon was populated by a much bigger population than we ever thought before the Spanish arrived. It is, I mean, I'm no scientist, and I'll accept their word for it, but it's really hard to believe that anybody could live there and create a civilization because it's dense jungle. And the, the I'm told that the, the earth is not good for agriculture. You know, it's very thin. And, uh, you know, we have this idea that there's vast amounts of wildlife but you wouldn't want to try to live off the land there at all because you don't see it. We did set up trap cameras to photograph wildlife at night. We did capture some images of deer and tapirs, sort of a pig-like wild creature. And we did see tracks of leopards, but it's not like you're walking around and you have lots of wildlife to take. Although the, we did get on the river and the river is, by our standards here, you know, I mean, in North America, we you can fish, obviously. In Europe, pathetically fished out, even in the Caribbean. Most of America is pretty much fished out, not entirely. South America is pretty staggering. You put elk in the water, bring up lots of big fish. But anyway, we did go after caimans, and we, we captured piranhas, and we hung piranhas on ropes off of trees that were over, over the water, you know branches over the water. And there was caimans that would leap out of the water and uh, try and grab these piranhas, big piranhas. Like, I've swum with piranhas in Venezuela, but there, I mean, they can still kill you. 
but they're there, you know, this sort of size. But in the Amazon, they're huge. They're a foot long, bigger. Anyway, we came upon what we thought, with the help of the locals there, might be the boat. How did you get there? Did you go down the river itself? Yeah. And how did you well, do that? Motorboats and, uh, and inflatable kayaks. We didn't. We based ourselves in a fishing lodge, very remote fishing lodge. So we used that as a base. And we went upstream and downstream from there. We did camp overnight, but we didn't go from A to B. We, we always went back to the fishing lodge. And in the end, we flew out of their, their uh, airstrip, dirt airstrip. We did find a boat, dug it up. In the end, it proved it was not Roosevelt's boat. It was a fishing boat. It was neat to find it. It was interesting, but it wasn't the right boat. How did it feel retracing Roosevelt's footsteps when you're actually doing it? Well, great. We have so many advantages over the way they did it back then, you know. But some things haven't changed. If I had it up on my iPad, now I could show a picture of what my legs look like. I photographed them. Just look like smallpox insect bites. Just ridiculously bitten by insects. There were tarantulas there. There were snakes. There are things that still want to want to kill you. But, you know, we were using inflatable kayaks, not 800-pound dugout canoes that had to be portaged around wicked rapids. I'll, uh, you know, I filmed on quite a few rapids in the world, and uh, these were extremely wild rapids. The rapids on the Rio Roosevelt, incredible. I'm not sure. I think that Roosevelt portaged around this particular set. We uh, were able to portage and line our boats through, which, you know, is you put the boats on ropes. You're not in them, and you walk along the shoreline. Often you can't do this because the shore is too, it's too difficult to access. But here you can. That's what we did. And then in other sections, we went through uh, inside the boats, inside our kayaks. I can only imagine, as, and I know you must have thought of it as you're portaging around those rapids, but how Roosevelt's team on those 800-pound solid wood dugout canoes, and just not exactly. one, had to lift, carry, roll it through that jungle around those, those rapids. It's an incredible story. We made a pretty good film about it. I might post it to YouTube, you never know. Um, but uh, there's a very good book about it called The River of Doubt, which I highly recommend. When you were there, tell us about the people, the locals. Well, I collaborated with two local filmmakers, one more of a still photographer and one a filmmaker. They were from, I think, Rio, maybe San Paulo, I forget. So they acted as our contacts, our translators, when we were working, because obviously I don't speak Portuguese. And always essential in all the adventures and expeditions I've had to connect with local. I call them fixers. They, they know the language, they know the customs, and they organize everything. Without them, you're lost. And so then we had local boatmen and cooks and pilots. And through our, our two fixers, we were able to, uh, to uh, make it happen. Now, you mentioned earlier a serious aspect to this project, and that was to observe and document what was happening to the environment there. What did you see? Well, there's no doubt that as we crossed over the Metagross of the Amazon Basin, you do see vast areas of, of land that have been clear-cut and gone. 
you know, our expeditions, all the expeditions I've been on, there was, you know, there's no doubt that you see examples of uh, the eating up of the world. The worst, I would say, the most obvious was in both the Yukon and in Patagonia of, of um, Argentina and Chile, both of them about 50 degrees north and south of the equator, where uh, you see the vast shrinking of the glaciers. You know from photographs where they were 20 years ago, and you can see from the glacial moraine where they were, and you see where they are today. Glaciers are probably the most obvious example of global warming. Greenland, too, you certainly see it there, too, with the, the vast amount of melting. And in the Amazon basin, you said you were witnessing a lot of clear cutting, a lot of brush fires, uh, slash and burn. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very common form of agriculture there. They just burned down the forest and let it sit for a year and then plant crops in it. And of course, what that does is it creates all this smoke in the, which contributes to more global warming. Biggest example of that is an expedition I went on in 2015 to Siberia. We went to the city of Yakutsk, which is considered the uh, coldest city in the world. It's in the far eastern part of Siberia. And then we went north on what's known as the Road of Bones. The road built during the era of the Gulag, called the Road of Bones, because so many political prisoners died in the making of it. Their bones were just left there, ground up, to become part of the road. We went to the town of Omnicon, which is the village of Omnicon, as the world record for coldest place on Earth, minus 71. I forget if that's Celsius or Fahrenheit. It doesn't much matter. It's insane. Now, doesn't get that cold anymore. But I was there. We were there in March. Minus 42. Minus 42 is pretty chilly. Even for a Canadian like you. Even for a Canadian like me. Yep. We also filmed extensively the issue of permafrost because the permafrost is melting in Siberia. What that does is it releases methane. That's why, because Siberia is a vast area of frozen vegetable and mineral matter. So a huge number of mammoths that are part of that, frozen. And that's why in the last 20 years, there's all these mammoths that have been discovered, pulled out of the ice. Big issue, permafrost melts, releases methane gas. Methane gas contributes to global warming even more than carbon dioxide gas. So it's a, a fixed negative loop. Let me switch gears on you. I want to go to the bigger picture, the lessons that you've learned over your years of adventure. But in particular, I mean, you've spent your career in large part documenting explorers and learning about about those people also, bringing their experiences to just regular folks. What do you think makes a good explorer? The first thing that makes a good explorer is not having any adventures. Adventures are explorations expeditions that go haywire. One tries not to have adventures. One tries to go and find new things, photograph them, paint them, describe them. In the case of scientists, bring back information about them without having adventures. Adventures are tipped over kayaks or scuba diving expeditions that end up with people that have the bends or people falling down cliffs or mountainsides. So, 
I have had adventures. You know, when George and I, with uh, about three or four other people, went to Patagonia, we tried to climb the uh, glaciers there. And there was a moment using ice axes and crampons, but no ropes. We went by sailboat. Then we walked for a day through swamps and muska, muskeg and stuff. And then we climbed on the glaciers. Well, there was a moment where I was below filming George climbing above me. He slept. He fell. He was coming towards me. Crampons first. Crampons are pointy, sharp. Below me was a crevice, probably 80 feet deep. Well, if I'd fallen down it, the only solution would have been that the skipper of our boat, our sailboat, would have had to walk back to his boat, launch the Zodiac, go out to his boat, get a hundred foot line or two, bring them back, walk back and throw them down to me and hope that I was still alive or that both of us were. So fortunately, George stopped himself with his ice axe. I was too freaked out to take accurate note of whether he performed that duty perfectly. But anyway, one way or another, he came to all. So that's an example of an adventure. That's what you don't want to have. Well, Peter, how can people learn more about you, see your films, and find your books? In the last couple of years, I've been writing in my latest book, right here, actually. Music versus the man. It's about a different kind of adventure. It's um, the story of musicians, singers, bands, and their relationship with the authorities, police, border guards, mayors the FBI, the Kremlin, through the years. It's a fascinating story that I includes some of the usual suspects. The Rolling Stones, John Lennon, Frank Sinatra, and others that you would know less about. And uh, so, want to learn a bit about, more about that book? It's on, go to Amazon, or Barnes & Noble, and they have much more information about the book, about the stories in the book. And you also have a website. What's the website address? PeterRowe.com. You know, we look forward to seeing your work. I'm truly a Renaissance man. It's been a privilege. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. You've, uh, I know you've done some pretty interesting expeditions yourself. And I'm very uh, honored that you asked me to come on your very good show and talk to you. So thanks so much. Thank you. uh, Best of wishes to you and your viewers. Same to you. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world.